John chapter 4. Been in this uh, chapter for a couple of weeks now. Chapter that deals with Jesus and his interaction with the uh, Samaritan woman at the well. We're going to start in verse 31. So as we get to verse 31, this is where the disciples come. His interaction with the, with the woman um, ends and the disciples come back. And this is where we pick up verse 31. It says, in the meantime, while his disciples prayed him saying, Master, eat. But he said unto them, I have meat to eat that you know not of. Therefore, said the disciples one to another, Hath any man brought him aught to eat? Jesus saith to them, My meat is to do the will of him that sent me, and to finish his work. Say not ye, there are yet four months, and then cometh harvest. Behold, I say unto you, lift up your eyes, and look on the fields, for they are white already to harvest. And he that reapeth receiveth wages and gathereth fruit unto life eternal, that both he that soweth and he that reapeth may rejoice together. And herein is that saying true, one soweth and another reapeth. I sent you to reap that whereon you bestowed no labor. Other men labored and ye are entered into their labors. And many of the Samaritans of that city believed on him for the saying of the woman which testified, he told me all that ever I did. So when the Samaritans were come unto him, they besought him that he would tarry with them. And he abode there two days. And many more believed because of his own words and said unto the woman, now we believe not because of thy saying, for we have heard him ourselves and know that this indeed, this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. And so as we, uh, as we look at this portion of John chapter 4, um, it's usually when we think of John 4, we think of the woman at the well, we think of uh, his, uh, Jesus' interaction with this woman, um, and, and sometimes this part of the story gets left off. Um, as Jesus is interacting with his disciples and he's beginning to set a tone for a pattern that they will then follow. And he will follow up on, really, in the Great Commission um, as, as Jesus' work continues to be carried out as his kingdom continues to grow. So we want to look at this passage in, in three different divisions or three different sections as we think about what's here. Uh, first, we want to think about uh, meat or food. Jesus says, I have meat or food that you know not of. We think about meat, labor, and kingdom. And you think about this, this passage as a whole, just using those three words, meat, labor, and kingdom. So number one, in verses 28 through 34, uh, the beginning of this chapter tells us that Jesus sits down at the well, that he is tired, that he is thirsty, and you could probably assume that hunger was there as well. His disciples went into the city to get food. The word that's used for meat here in the King James doesn't mean meat like a steak or a piece of chicken. It's just a word that means food, just a general word for food. Um, his disciples had gone into the city to get food. They came back with food, and this is this is where we pick up in our, our text. Um, really, if we back up to verse 28, it says, The woman left her water pot and went her way into the city and saith unto the men, Come and see a man which told me all things that ever I did. Is not this the Christ? And then they went out of the city and came unto him. In the meanwhile, his disciples prayed him saying, Master, eat. Okay, so they, they knew Jesus had sat there. They knew that um, it was time for him to be nourished by physical food. And he said, Lord, eat. Here it is. 
But he says, I have meat to eat that you do not know, that you know not of. Okay, when when Jesus uses this word meat, he's obviously using it in a metaphorical sense, using it in a figurative sense. The disciples miss that. They begin to ask who brought him food. And Jesus then clarifies, my meat is to do the will of the Father. That is my sustenance, my, my purpose, my driving motive, my delight even, is to do the will of the Father. Now, as we've looked at this, we've talked a time, maybe two, but at least once, about how John chapter 4 should affect the way that we think about evangelism. When we, when we looked at the very first part of John chapter 4, we... Um, spend an afternoon talking about a um, maybe some practical thoughts on evangelism just based off of Jesus' model here with this woman. And this is an evangelistic type passage. Well, Jesus tells us here, as His disciples come and they're trying to get Him to eat, I want you to know that what's happening here is not that Jesus says that I'm in some kind of a... Uh, some kind of a mystical plane that I no longer feel hunger. I'm just going to do ministry and my body is going to continue to function as if I did eat. So here's what I mean by that. There's nothing really mystical going on here. Jesus isn't saying, I don't eat food anymore. I love God instead. Okay, that's not the way it works. Uh, when you fast as a spiritual exercise, it's not to prove that you don't need food. It's so that your hunger pains may remind you that you need something more than food. And when Jesus is talking about his meat or the satisfaction or the delight that he receives by doing the will of the Father, he's saying that I need something. There's something more than food, something more than physical sustenance that I need or that I live for, and this is it. It's to do the will of the Father. You remember in Matthew chapter 4, verse 4, Jesus says, as it is written, okay, he's quoting Deuteronomy, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. We're seeing that illustrated in Jesus' life right here in John chapter 4. Jesus is saying that something is happening. Something has happened. Something is happening that's far more important than physical food. It's far more important than physical sustenance right now. Psalm 40, this is quoted again in Hebrews, but turn to Psalm 40. We're going to look at verses 6 through 10, and, and this is a... Again, this is a passage that's picked up again in, in the book of Hebrews and it's applied directly to Jesus Christ. And so Psalm 40 verse 6 says, Sacrifice and offering thou didst not desire. Mine ears hast thou opened. Burnt offering and sin offering hast thou not required. Then said I, Lo, I come in the volume of the book. It is written of me. I delight to do thy will. Oh my God, yea, thy law is within my heart. I have preached righteousness in the great congregation. Lo, I have not refrained my lips, O Lord, thou knowest. I have not hid thy righteousness within my heart. I have declared thy faithfulness and thy salvation. I have not concealed thy loving kindness and thy truth from the great congregation. Really, Verse 7 is, is, is where we, we pick up with, with the character of Christ. Lo, I come in the volume of the book. As it is written of me, I delight. I delight to do thy will. Because thy law is within my heart. Okay, again, this, 
this metaphor for meat, my food, my delight, is to do your will. It is to fulfill your word or your book, as it's referred to here in in, uh, Psalm 40, verse 7. Jesus Christ comes in the volume of the book because it is his delight to fulfill the will of the Father. Now, you need to keep this in mind is something that we um, something that we think about in a couple of different theological categories. Number one, uh, Jesus Christ is the only man who we could ever say did this perfectly. Okay, Whenever we're thinking about um, what this means from a a practical standpoint that he delighted to do the will of God. Well, this we're going to deviate from the real emphasis of the text here for just a second, but we can take that and we can we can apply that to the the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. That is when we are when we are saved and 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 we are covered in the blood of Christ. The Lord sees us as if we always delighted to do His will because Christ did that on our behalf. Okay? So that our, our, our entrance with Him is wide open as a beautiful doctrine, a beautiful reality. As far as our position with the Lord, that's, that's where we are. It says that He could do this because verse 8 your law is within my heart. It's part of who I am. It's what motivates me. Now let's leave that there for just a second. Let's go to John chapter 6. John chapter 6. This is going to help bring this into applying it at least to John 4. In John chapter 6, verse 38, John 6, verse 38, Jesus says, For I came down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of Him that sent me. Now let's just stop for a second. We're going to read 39 and 40, but let's just stop for a second. What... what, the emphasis of John chapter 4, at least the message here and, and the text clearly lays this out. When we begin to apply this chapter is going to be on evangelism. I mean, it's witnessing, evangelizing. Jesus witnesses to this woman. This woman turns around and goes into the city and, and begins to witness to these people. These people come back to Jesus who believed because of her testimony and apparently some who didn't believe because of her testimony because then they hear the words of Jesus and they believe because they've heard what He had to say. When we think about the difficulties that surround our carrying out, entering into, participating in evangelistic work, There's a lot of things about it that can be intimidating. There's a lot of things about it that we can be uncertain about. But when we think about the absence of evangelistic efforts, I'm thinking personally here. I'm not talking about anybody else but us. On a personal level, when you think about the absence of any sort of evangelistic efforts, it has a whole lot more to do with your will than it does your evangelistic skill. Here's what I mean. Jesus says in John chapter 6, verse 38, I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of Him who sent me. I'm getting ahead of myself here, but you remember in John chapter 4, verse 4, whenever it said, uh, Jesus said, I must needs go through Samaria. Or maybe the text just says, He must needs go through Samaria. It was God's will that He go through Samaria. Why do you think that was? You say, well, the encounter of the woman at the well. Well, that was one of the reasons. 
And we don't get a number, but maybe hundreds more. Jesus says, I didn't come to do my will, but his will. And this is the Father's will, verse 39, which hath sent me that of all which he hath given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. And this is the will of him that sent me, that everyone which seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Now, this is not brand new news to you. You know that this is the Father's will. You know that this was the work of Christ that um, He did. But one of the things that I want you to pay attention to as you read that text, verses 39, 40, 41, is the regular repeat at this is His will. I came to do His will. Now this is His will. It's His will, verse 40, um, that... Um, Everyone which sees and believes on Him, that is on Christ, would have everlasting life and He would raise Him up on the last day. Verse 39, it's His will that uh, all that He had given Him, He should lose none, but raise Him up again on the last day. The, The point that I'm making here is that Jesus made His plans not based on His preference, not based on what what. What, what happened to take place. Jesus made His plans and He responded to people based on the sure knowledge of God's revealed will for His life and for His purpose. And He knew that in John chapter 4, now obviously Jesus is going to have some insights that we don't have, but that doesn't take away some of the similarities that we're going to look at in a minute. He knew in John chapter 4 that He had to go through Samaria. Because God had, the Father had a divine appointment for him there. This is the will. It's the will of God for Christ. Now, when we're thinking about John 4 and, and Jesus saying, um, let me get to the text here. As they're, as they're asking or praying him to, to eat, And he says in verse 32, I have meat to eat that you know not of. And then in verse 34, my meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. This is not just an abstract statement about Jesus delighting to do God's will. Now that principle is true, and we just mentioned that out of Psalm 40, out of John 6, and you can find several other places in John where Jesus says, I didn't come to say my, to bring my own words. I say the things that the Father has given me to say. I do the things that He's given me to do. I don't do anything in my own strength. I do everything in His strength, and so forth and so on. But in the context of John 4, Jesus is delighting in the work that the Father had given Him to do in drawing the Samaritan woman to Himself and then seeing the harvest that comes from that. Again, He must needs go through Samaria. The woman at the well says, what are you, a Jew, doing talking to me? What's the answer? Well, it's my meat to the will of the Father. That's what I'm doing. This is what the Father sent me to do. This is what I'm, I'm to, to be busy doing. So Jesus says, I delight. I delight in your law. I delight in your word. I delight in your will. And by the way, we're, those are all synonymous phrases. You can't say that you delight in the will of God and not delight in the Word of God because you don't know the will of God outside of the Word of God. So anytime we see passages in Scripture like we're going to in a minute where it talks about delighting in the Word, we're not talking about just delighting in... um, you know, poetical phrases, or we're not talking about delighting in uh, vague concepts or abstractions. We're talking about delighting in the revealed will of God, whether that be His purposes in um, and, and His work in Christ, or whether that be His His purposes and His will for you. We know that. Part of what Christ came to do, I say part, a major chunk 
of what Christ came to do was to preach the good news and to set captives free. And again, we see that here in John 4. How could he do that? Well, because he delighted to do his will. So now the question here, at least in this point, is what about you? What about you? I'm thankful that Jesus is the perfect evangelist. I'm thankful that Jesus has the power to draw all men to Himself. And when we say all men, we really mean all of His people. And we'll look at that when we think about Jesus being the Savior of the world. But Jesus has also given His people the call, the responsibility to carry out His work. And the question is, what about you? What what makes you get up in the morning? What makes you delight? What What are you zealous for? What's your driving purpose? Now when I say this, I don't mean everybody ought to quit their job and become a full-time evangelist. What I do mean is, and this is really more to the point as we look at this passage, evangelism is not something that you quit all your responsibilities in order to do. Evangelism is something that ought to permeate every responsibility and role that you have in your life. Evangelism is part of the life, the fabric of the life of a Christian. We see that from the very beginning. Remember, Philip was converted and immediately what did he do? Well, he went and went and evangelized, went and witnessed about what Christ had done for him. The woman in Samaria is converted and what does she do? Well, she runs out into the city and begins to talk about Jesus and what Jesus had done for her. Psalm 40, verse 8, it says about Jesus that He delights to do the will of God because His law is written in His heart. Well, look in Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah chapter 31. In Jeremiah 31, verse 33, he's talking about the the, the new covenant. And in verse 33, he says, But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts and will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, saith the Lord, for for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. You see what happens in, in Jeremiah 31, 33. Part of what it means, part of what has to happen when we're thinking about regeneration and the, the end goal of salvation is that you would be completely conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, right? And as the Holy Spirit comes and brings you from death to life, He writes the law of the Lord in your heart. To what end? That you might delight in it. That you might embrace it. That you might live on it. And so it won't do for us to say, well, you know, Jesus was so zealous because he said it was his meat to do the will of the Father. We can't be that zealous. We're not Jesus. Well, it is true. You're not Jesus. But you're being conformed to the, the, the likeness of Jesus. And you've been equipped by God with all the necessary materials for that to be happening. Matthew chapter 6, this is another aspect here. Matthew chapter 6, I'm not going to turn there, verses 9 and 10 in the, in, in, in the, the Lord's Prayer. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's a hard attitude. That's Lord, we long to see your will to be done on earth. It is my meat to do the will and to see the will of the Father unfolding. How does that relate to 
to the Word. We've talked about it already. God's will and God's Word are directly connected. You can't have one without the other as far as us knowing it, as far as us delighting in it, as far as us being driven by it. Look what Jeremiah, I'm sorry, not Jeremiah, look what Job says in Job 23. In Job 23, verse 11, Job 23, verse 11, My foot hath held his steps, his way have I kept and not declined. Neither have I gone back from the commandment of his lips. I have esteemed the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. What's Job saying? Well, really, you could, you, could, you could summarize verses 11 and 12 by just simply saying, Job says, my meat is to do the will of the Lord. I've esteemed His Word greater than my necessary food. I've held His commandments. I've not declined or, or, or shied away from those. Jeremiah says the same thing in Jeremiah 15. Jeremiah 15, 16. Thy words were found and I did eat them. And thy word was unto me the joy and rejoicing of my heart. For I am called by thy name, O Lord God of hosts. I found it. I ate it. That is, I consumed it. I rejoiced in it. Well, again, this is something that God's people do. This is something that God's people have a capacity for, a delight in. So when we say we esteem the Lord's Word more than necessary food, that we delight in it, that we eat it, we think about this as it relates to evangelism, we don't have to think too hard. Right, Matthew 28, go, teach, preach, Baptize. Evangelism is part of the church's work. It's reinforced in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Verse Peter 3, 15 says that we ought to have an answer. Be ready to give an answer for anyone who asks us for the hope that lies within us. Why would we not do that? Well, we could come up with all kinds of reasons why. But Jesus says that the reason that his life looked the way that it did is because here's another way that we could think about it. He was seeking first the kingdom of God. It was his meat. It was his delight. It was his driving purpose to do kingdom work and kingdom work. Along. I don't know how to say, let me think about how to say this right. Kingdom work permeated every aspect of his earthly work. Here's what I mean by that. It was There was no big divide. You say, well, of course, he was Jesus. He was the Savior. Of course, that's the way it worked. But that's the way it ought to work with you and me as well. We don't have time to where we do our earthly work and then we have time set aside to where we do our kingdom work. All work is kingdom work. Now, one of the very helpful parts about John chapter 4 is this next part of labor in verses 35 through 38 when Jesus talks about the sowing and the reaping and the harvesting and the way that this all works. So uh, sometimes evangelism can be intimidating to us because we just we, we, we wonder what are we supposed to do or we, we, we feel like the, the weight on us maybe is heavier than it is. Um, I've said it already, when we think about why we aren't as active as we are called to be, it starts with the heart. It starts with what you delight in. It starts with what you prioritize. But then sometimes we can misunderstand what it is and how it is that this evangelism is supposed to work. So look in verse 35. Verse 35. After Jesus says in verse 34, my meat is to do the will of, of him that sent me and to finish his work. Then he says in verse 35, say not ye there are yet four months and then cometh harvest. This was just a, this was just a saying 
They had a cultural saying, you, you, you sow the seed and in, within four months, you'll have the harvest. Okay. This is, this is just a, something he's getting ready to play off of. Behold, I say unto you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields, for they are white already to harvest. What Jesus is saying? He's saying you don't have to wait four months. Okay? This is your saying. Okay, we sow and then we come back in four months and we harvest. Jesus says, I'm telling you to look up. In other words, he's saying, open your eyes and look around. You don't have to wait. It's ready. The harvest is ready. Now, verse 36, And he that reapeth receiveth wages and gathereth fruit unto life eternal. And both he that soweth and he that reapeth may rejoice together. And herein is that saying true, one soweth and another reapeth. And I sent you to reap that whereon you bestowed no labor. Other men labored and ye are enter into their labors. So this is the imagery that Jesus is using. He talks about this harvest. Fields are wide unto harvest. He's just talking about, the, as far as the harvest goes, that's just the converts to Christ. Those who are being drawn to the Father. Those who are being converted. Those are the harvest. But in this whole um, business of evangelism and this whole business of uh, uh, preparing for the harvest, there's sowing and there is reaping. Sowing and reaping. I'm going to take the verses a little bit out of order, but Jesus says in verse 37, herein is that saying true, one soweth and another reapeth. There are those who, who sow the seed, and then there are those who end up reaping the harvest. One of the reasons why this is helpful is because sometimes when you think about evangelism, you think that evangelism looks like this. I go and I talk to somebody and in one single conversation, I tell them about the Lord and they come to Christ and we rejoice and we go home. Sometimes that might happen. But that's not really the picture of a sowing and a reaping and a harvesting, is it? He tells his disciples that you're going to end up reaping in a field that you didn't even labor in. There are a lot of other people that labor and you're going to go reap that. Evangelism is just simply entering into the labor. There may be a thousand spiritual conversations that an individual has before the Lord finally decides to connect all those dots and bring that person from death to life through the power of the Spirit. The point that I'm making here is, when you think about evangelism, you may sow. That may be all you do. Or it may be that you encounter someone and it's the Lord's timing for that person and you reap. That is, the word that you share is blessed by the Spirit. And in God's mercy, this person is drawn to Christ. The bigger point is, you don't get to choose which one you're doing. Okay? You can either choose to labor or not to labor. One of the two. Now, you cannot say, I delight in doing the Father's will, but I'm not going to labor. Okay? Because it's the Father's will that you do labor. It's His field. It's His kingdom. It's His harvest. So you don't get to choose which category that your efforts are going to fall in. God does. Now look, look how Paul thinks about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Starting in verse 5. 1 Corinthians 3, 5. Who then is Paul? 
and who is Apollos, but ministers by whom you believed, even as the Lord gave to every man. I have planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then neither is he that planted anything, neither he that watereth, but God that giveth the increase. Now he that planteth and he that watereth are one, and every man shall receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are laborers together with God. Ye are God's husbandry. Ye are God's building. What are they talking about here? Well, Paul's talking about the same thing that we're looking at in John chapter 4. Okay, Christ is drawing people to Himself. The Lord is converting these Samaritans. And Paul says, look, I, I, uh, uh, I plant and Apollos watered, but, but God gave the increase. But then he goes on and, and essentially says, look, it doesn't matter what you want to call what I'm doing. It's the Lord who is increasing. It's the Lord who's blessing our efforts. It's God who is producing growth. It's His vineyard. It's His building. It's his harvest. But he says this. Um, in verse 8, He that planteth and he that watereth are one, and every man shall receive his own reward according to his own labor. So while you're not the most important aspect here, you will receive something that correlates with the labor that you put into the kingdom. What is that? Well, it's joy. It's the rejoicing and seeing the work of the Lord. We've talked about this before, but isn't it silly? Isn't it silly to pray that the Lord would grow our assembly and never ever evangelize? You say, well, why is that silly? Because God's means of growing the church is evangelism. Okay, Wouldn't it be silly to sit at home and say, Lord, I'm praying for my daily bread and never go to work? Never go to the store? He says, again, whenever we think about God building His church and doing that through the means of evangelism, sometimes people shy away from that sort of thing because they think, oh, well, you're putting all the glory and all the efforts and everything on you. No, this is God's plan. This is God's will. It's what He's called the church to do. And and it's not called humility when we neglect God's means. It's called pride when we say, I know a better way. We'll do nothing and then exalt God's sovereignty when He decides to do something. Paul says, look, I'm nothing. Okay? I, 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 I sow, I plant, Apollos waters. I'm nothing. It's God who gives the increase. But He gives that increase according to your labors. We know, we know, that there is absolutely nothing we can do in and of ourselves to produce spiritual fruit in the lives of others. But we also know that God has decreed that we would not just uh, be part of His work in the world as far as evangelism goes, but that we would also be part of His work in discipleship so that we're stirring one another up into love and to good works. And we're, we're preaching so that Romans 10 type of informed faith takes place. How are you going to believe if you never hear? Kind of a thing. And so, we think about this sowing and reaping. I've said this before, but I think this, this whole principle and this passage backs it up again. When we think about evangelism, we need to be process-oriented people, not results-oriented people. The results are up to God. 
The process is what he's given us. So again, I said it already, I'll say it again. Doing evangelism is more about a person's will than a person's skill. It's more about a person's will than a person's skill. Now, look in Proverbs chapter 11, just so we can balance that out a little bit. Proverbs chapter 11. Proverbs 11, verse 30, it says, The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and he that winneth souls is wise. He that winneth souls is wise. So obviously, we can always grow in our skill. Okay, it says that he who winneth souls, this is kind of a pattern here, is wise. You gain wisdom and so forth and so on. But, but here's the greater point. You will never, ever grow in your skill until you begin to take advantage of the opportunities that the Lord gives you to to witness of His mercies and to share the gospel where you have opportunity. So many times we're driven by fear and really embrace the ignorant idea that I'm not going to do it until I feel completely comfortable and completely um, uh, confident in my abilities and my efforts. That, that's not the way it works. It's not the way it works. We need to be willing. We need to be aware. We need to be alert. And again, I'm, I'm not talking about Let's get together this afternoon and figure out how we can start knocking on doors and how you can go out in the parking lot of Food Giant and do open-air preaching. If you want to do that, go ahead, but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about you taking advantage of the providential opportunities that the Lord gives you on a regular basis. And we're going to talk this afternoon about a more practical approach to that, but you taking advantage of those. Jesus tells His disciples, you are, are, are sent to reap where you did not labor. You were sent to reap where you did not labor. You know what that means? That means God's not putting all His eggs in your basket. Maybe God's given you an opportunity and God may use you really as just one little step in a person's life. Now, who knows what step that's going to be? Maybe that's the first step. Or maybe that's the last step that comes right before their conversion. Who knows? But the Lord sends His people plural. And and, and so He's not banking completely on you. But, But then get this, just in case you're thinking, well, wait a second, wait a second. This is good for pastors, but, you know, evangelism is not something I ought to be doing. Well, think about the implications of what Jesus is telling His disciples here. You've been sent to reap where you did not labor. Well, who labored? Well, the Samaritans held to the first five books of Moses, so Moses labored. He didn't get to reap the harvest. The prophets labored. We're thinking about the kingdom of God as a whole now, but they didn't get to reap the harvest. John the Baptist was laboring. You remember, they just parted ways as far as being proximity close to each other. But he didn't get to reap the harvest. The Samaritan woman had been converted for a couple of hours. And she goes and reaps the harvest. Can you believe that? Let me tell you about a man who told me everything I ever did. And all of a sudden she comes back. And a crowd comes with her. Now listen, this woman barely knew anything. Right? She wasn't the person you would go to to say, teach me how to do what you just did. She would say, huh? What did I do? She was not a person of influence. She was not gifted by God as an evangelist. We know for sure that was not her gifting. She wasn't a mover and a shaker. She spent, if, if, if the timing of, of her visit to the well indicates anything, 
She spent her days trying to avoid people. You remember she went at noon, the hottest part of the day, when nobody was at the well. Probably because she was trying to avoid folks. Why? She'd been married five times and the guy she was living with right now wasn't her husband. And yet, God used this woman's will and made up for her lack of skill. Let me tell you about a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Now, now here's, here's the other point in verse 36. So we have, we have those who sow, those who reap. Um, there are times where we reap, where we do not labor. But the greater point, really, of, of this section is emphasized in verse 36. And he that reapeth receiveth wages and gathereth fruit unto life eternal, that both he that soweth and he that reapeth may rejoice together. You see, brothers and sisters, we're not competing for position. When we think about evangelism, again, it's process-oriented, not results-oriented. We're not trying to be the most successful evangelist the world's ever known. We want to be the most faithful evangelist the world's ever known. Jesus, as far as success goes, in His earthly ministry, was rejected far more than He was received. But He was a successful Savior, right? He finished what? The work that the Father sent Him to do. He was faithful. So we aren't competing for position. We're participating and the labor that Christ has given to His church. We said this already, but we can't twist God's arm and make Him do anything. But if there are no efforts, there are no labors, there's nothing for God to bless. And so we have meat. It's my meat, my delight to do the will of the Father. We have labor, that is, those who are sowing, those who are reaping. Then we see the kingdom. The kingdom, verse 39. Many of the Samaritans of that city believed on Him. For the saying of the woman which testified, He told me all that, I, that ever I did. So when the Samaritans were come unto Him, they besought Him that He would tarry with them. And He abode there two days. And many more believed because of His own word and said unto the woman, Now we believe, not because of Thy saying, for we have heard Him ourselves and know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. Now let me let me read a passage we've gone to several times over the last year or so. But just to frame what's happening here, Jesus, who is the Messiah, goes into Samaria, which is a place the Jews wouldn't go. And all of a sudden, he has these Samaritan converts coming to him. Daniel chapter 7, verse 14, verse 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought Him near before Him. And there was given Him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and His kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. Now, John chapter 4 is this kingdom being realized, being entered into by who? By all people, by all nations. 
these people, these people groups, you know, the, 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 the closing phrase to our section here is that they said, we know that this indeed is the Christ, the Savior of the world. Well, what do we do with a phrase like that? Well, again, Christ has gone not to the Jews here, but to the Samaritans. You remember the, the woman said, what in the world are you doing talking to me? You're a Jewish man. I'm a Samaritan woman. We don't interact. Well, Christ is going into all the world, as it were. He's going beyond the Jewish boundary. He's, we're thinking about Jews and Gentiles. We're thinking about all nations. And this is this is prophesied um, in the prophets that that the world would be brought into this covenant. Really, what we see here, it's interesting to think about it this way, but we see Matthew 21, 31 illustrated. Look at Matthew 21. Jesus, in, in verse 28, Jesus gives this story about a man with two sons and he told him to go do something and, and the, one, the one son said, yeah, I'll go, but he never goes. And the other son said, no, I'm not going. But then he ended up turning around and going and, and doing what the father had told him to do. And he said, which one do you think, um, which one do you think did the will of his father? Verse 31, and they said unto him, the first. And Jesus saith unto them, Verily I say unto you that the publicans and the harlots go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came unto you in the way of righteousness, and you believed him not, but the publicans and the harlots believed him, and ye, when ye had seen it, repented not afterward that you might believe him. Well, part of what John chapter 4 is doing is illustrating this reality. The Samaritans go into the kingdom before guys like Nicodemus do. These, these people that are separated from God ethnically, that are separated from God's people, that, that, you know, again, when Jesus comes to this woman and she's saying, do we go to Jerusalem or is it the mountain? And Jesus says, well, it's neither. But just so you know, the Jews are the one who have the full revelation of God, not you. You guys are wrong. And yet the Samaritans go in before guys like Nicodemus. Why? Because the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is growing. And so just based on what happens in this text, we think about evangelism. We know for sure that the way this whole thing starts out is that the woman went out. She told about Jesus, what Jesus had done for her. And so number one, do not underestimate the power of a personal gospel testimony in evangelism. So what, what would I say? What would I say? Well, has Christ done anything in your life? Maybe start there. Maybe start there. It says that many believed on him due to the Samaritan woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. Is this not the Christ? And then it says the result of that was they came to Jesus. Well, what's the power? Well, the power is that this woman was faithful and God used her faithfulness. So don't, don't forget about the power of a good personal testimony in evangelism. Number two, again, we're just thinking about the way the text plays out. Don't forget and don't underestimate the power of the Word of God in evangelism. Don't underestimate the power of sharing the Word of God in evangelism. Okay, The people come because of the woman's testimony, but then it says when they got there, they heard Jesus speaking Himself and more believed, and they said it wasn't because of what she said, it was because of what He said. You know, what does this mean as far as, as we think about it relating to evangelism? It means it has a lot less to do with your tricks and your polished phrases and your go-to strategies. And it has much more to do with God using His Word through the power of the Spirit to bring His people to Himself. 
says, many more believe because of Jesus' word. Isaiah 55, 9-11 lets us know that God's word will not return unto him void, but it will accomplish all that he has purposed for it to do. Jeremiah 23, 29 says that God's word is like a hammer that breaks the stone. Again, the Lord's told us to be faithful. He's told us to be faithful. That's all we can do. If we think about evangelism as being God putting all the pressure on us to produce change in people's lives, we got it all wrong. You can't do that. That's above your pay grade. That's above my pay grade. We, that's nothing we can do. What has he told us to do? Well, he's told us to labor, to sow. Hebrews chapter 4 talks about that the word of God is so powerful and it's so penetrating that it, it penetrates the heart and it even divides the soul and the spirit. It's, it goes where you can't go. And it does things that you could never do. So do not underestimate the power of Scripture or the Word. And then, lastly, do not underestimate or forget the person and power of Jesus Christ in evangelism. You think you're more committed to drawing people to Jesus than Jesus is? If you do, you'll be bashful about evangelism. If you think that you're more committed than God is, then you'll be scared. You'll be intimidated. But you're not. There's not a person on the planet that was more committed to, to the Father's will than His Son, Jesus Christ. And He tells us already, we read it in John chapter 6, that this is the will that He would draw all men to Himself. And so Jesus here is... Revealed as the Savior of the world. So the end goal here of evangelism is it's not to bring people to a system or to an institution. It's to bring people to a person. And who knows what that person might do? We're talking about Jesus Christ. Who knows what He might do in an individual's life? This is the Savior of the world. The one who saves Jews and Gentiles. The one who goes into all nations. What this means is that our work is not limited. Our work doesn't have boundaries. We preach to whoever will listen. We speak to whoever will listen. We share with whoever will listen. And why do we do this? Because it's the Father's will. That's why we do it. And it's our delight to do His will. And so again, brothers and sisters, as we think about what it means for Christ to be the Savior of the world and how that relates to evangelism, and then looking at John chapter 4, we see that there's labor. There's labor that needs to be done. And whether or not we're part of that labor has a lot more to do with our will than it does our skill. And there is a kingdom that God is building and growing. And you and I have an opportunity to be part of that. May God bless us to see it as we should and to enter into those labors. Now, as I said, this afternoon, we're going to look at, um, we're going to look at some practical, concrete ways that you can think about evangelism and how to carry that out with the opportunities that the Lord has given you. But for, for our sakes this morning, the prayer for us is that we would, like Jesus, say, it is my meat to do the will of the Father. I am not here to do my own will, but to do the will of Him who sent me. Let's pray. Father, we do pray that You would bless us to be concerned with, and even, Lord, really, that we would elevate Your will over our own. Uh, we confess that we can become enslaved to our desire for comfort and ease, to avoid awkward interactions, to avoid failure, um, to avoid uh, just really anything that we're not comfortable with. And, and we can't do kingdom work. We cannot be 
Um, we cannot be consumed with your will and our will all at the same time. And so I pray you would bless us to delight to do what you've called us to do. I pray that we would labor in your kingdom. I pray that we would rejoice in the harvest that you're producing. And I pray that we would be found faithful. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.